1: I'm Marcus Aurelius Anderson, and my guest today truly embodies that phrase. Nate Gladden describes himself as a simple man who is doing the best that he can to figure himself out. Stoicism, the blues, podcasting, writing, and whiskey seem to help him out the most on this journey. Now, Nate has been in the U.S. Air Force for 19 years, and is the creator, coach, and host of the Inheriting Manhood podcast. He is a dynamic senior leader with an accomplished military career as a member of the U.S. Air Force, specifically Special Operations Command. He's highly experienced in crisis action and in organizational leadership, as well as advanced training and conflict resolution. Now, Nate, I met you via the Stoicon X virtual event. Thank you so much for being here today. Yeah. That, for me, was a huge honor to be on that stage with you, with uh, J.C. Glick, with... Oh yeah. Donald Robertson, the one that actually created it. And then obviously, yeah. you know, Ryan Holiday. These are like the top stoics living today in society. So it was great to hear what you had to say there. And it's it's great to have you on the show today.
2: I, I appreciate you having me on, brother. I really do. This is uh this is a this is a big honor. It's humbling. You know, I told you before we started, I said something I was like, I don't think I'm that interesting, but hey, if somebody thinks I am, so but uh but no, I, I that uh, stoicon for me was re- like, you know, we've talked. I was terrified. I was like, I'm staring into a freaking computer screen because obviously the virtual side of it. So I was like, right. I'm gonna stare into this. I hope it's recording. I think it's going. I hope that somebody's listening and can hear. Like, I went through the whole thing and I was like, at the end of it, yeah, make sure this is all working, and then at the same time. I'm not really. A, I've never given speeches, really, right? Like for me, that was you know I've given like a speech or whatever in like my squadron or something where it's been like, mm-hmm. hey, you got to present something, whatever. That's fine. But um, I've done a little bit of um, local schools and stuff like that, like some veteran day stuff. I've done that once or twice, but nothing like that. So I was uh, I was yeah. very nervous. <laughs>
1: well, and the the good thing is you have a bunch of Stoics listening to you, so they're going to uh, yeah they're on they're on your side. Yeah, I've. I've literally gone into places to give keynotes where there's a thousand people in the room, and you can feel that a lot of them have their hands crossed and they they're not on board at the beginning. Yeah. So that's a very challenging yeah. feeling. But it's also challenging too, like you said, when you're looking at the screen, are there thousands of people watching me? Are there ten people? Is this thing even on? Am yeah. I doing this? And they're trying to contact me and say, hey, you know, it's not going. But
2: it is. It, it is. Went,
1: it went off without a hitch.
2: Oh yeah. It, it was really cool. You talk about going out on stage and doing that. I've never done that. One of the unique things is like sitting back behind the scenes. So Katie, so my lovely, lovely uh, lady, uh, she's a speaker. She does amazing work. She does coaching and stuff like that. She's awesome, but I've gone and like sat in the back corner behind her, like, like behind the curtain and watched and like filmed, taking pictures, filmed all that kind of stuff. And it's, it's a very unique thing to sit back to watch, like see somebody trying to present, but at the same time trying to read the audience. Right. And I've watched that and I was like, well, now this is different. Like I've been in the audience to see somebody. So that's, yeah. So that walk out on stage and those lights is something, like I said, I'm not, I'm not used to that, but it was very unique to see the body language as it shifts. Like you said, and you see it as it goes through right. that hour, that 30 minutes or whatever the case may be. It's really, it's really unique to see. And
1: there's certain advantages to that. If you have a room of a hundred people, you can usually see almost every face which is fantastic right. because now you can see what lands, you know where to move, you know where to to focus but when you get bigger stages or even like a TEDx you've got 11 different cameras, yeah. lights everywhere, they're telling you not to get off the red dot. Yeah. So literally you know there's a bunch of people there watching but you can't see beyond the first row.
2: Right. Yeah. So
1: it's there's a whole lot of <laughs> dynamics in any kind of speaking environment. Uh-huh. So no matter what it is, there's going to be a little bit of a little bit of feeling nervous but that's good that means that we're we're excited about what we're about to do so yeah yeah no doubt no doubt it's big stuff so tell me a little bit about what you talked about at Stoicon and then tell me a little bit about because technically my podcast is a philosophy podcast tell me a little bit about the role that stoicism has played in your life kind of when you discovered it and then we'll just keep going from there
2: yeah well you know i kind of talked about it during stoicon a little bit in the sense of right. like uh kind of being introduced to stoics i think like everybody else i her of Stoicism Early on, but didn't really, you know. Say you you learn about philosophy in school, right? So they tell you about this philosophy and that philosophy, and you just try to pass the test. You're just trying to remember all the. You're like, wait, that one means this, and then that one, okay, and you know. So you just try to figure out that math equation for that test, if you will. Right. Like a lot of people, that's kind of what I had, and then later on, whenever I got into the military, is when I actually heard it. So you, uh, obviously being a former army side of things, you would understand. You know, obviously, tons of jumps have to happen, airborne, you know, schools, all that kind of stuff. So. But the basic gist of how that all happened was we were down at Pope Airfield. So for anybody that doesn't, Fort Bragg would probably be a little bit more understandable for right. most people. So down in North Carolina, and there are quite a few drop zones and also landing zones. And to keep the story kind of condensed and short, basically as a C 130 guy, I was, I was still during my C 130 days. So, you know, hauling butt down the uh, dirt airstrip. Uh, one of the, guys that we had dropped, you know, he jumped out, grabbed a shoot and everything else. He was running back. And they usually run obviously kind of like parallel with the, you know, with the dirt strip. Get around that once it's done, they clear him and everything else. And he just kinda of had a brain snap and he turned. To go across the runway, and this all happened quick, right? So if you were to watch this, and you were like a, you're just the person that didn't really know, you wouldn't even necessarily see what was going on. But if you were somebody who jumps, if you're somebody that shoots yes, you know, yes, yes. the airfield open, if you're one of the flyers, you would know that this like almost turned into something really nasty, really fast. He he, unbrain snapped pretty quick uh, and just dropped right, and just dropped to the ground, and we kept going. But in that little bit of that nuance, we have a routine basically where where the co-pilot sits he says you know as we're getting to airspeed and everything else he says rotate and i'm a flight engineer so i would be sitting basically in the center of the flight deck looking i've got kind of a panoramic view pilot to my left co-pilot to my right uh, navigator over my right shoulder and then of course like just all the windows that you can see out of you know and then obviously all of my you know panels and stuff like that above me and below me so his role is to basically call rotate and as the co-pilot i saw this young man start to dart The pilot luckily had seen it as well, but the co-pilot couldn't see where he's from. So I called rotate because in my mind, I was like, we have to get off the ground now. I called it about three knots fast, which it's not the end of the world. However, it's also not something you're supposed to do, right? It's not my job to call it and it was not the right speed. So of course the co-pilot now is angry, has no idea why this is happening. Like no idea why that's a thing that 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 I just screamed out loud, you know, not him. And in the middle of doing that, of course, we just, the pilot waited a second, climbs off the whole nine, gets off the ground, does his job the way he's supposed to to control the you know control the situation. Yep. And basic gist, once we got off the ground, you know, we were of course like arguing anything else. And co-pilot's like, "Why are you yelling at me? Why are you doing this? Why are you doing that?" And like, we're kind of just mad. And all at once, the pilot just like, the "Pilot's just like, it's not the things that upset us, but our opinion about things." And like,
1: huh. like there you go.
2: Like we're, we're, just we're in, un, under stress. And why are we, uh, why are we doing this? Like, why are we, why are we upset about this? Anyways. So in the, in the process of, or why are we saying this? And in the process of that, it kind of like led us to later, once we got everything done, got back, got cleaned up, debrief, yeah. got to A-A-R, the bar. Yeah. yeah. Got back to the yeah. bar after the debrief, after all the other good stuff. And he just said, "Anybody know who that is and we of course didn't. So he's like, that's, you know, Epictetus. And so, that's kind of what was my introduction over beer, in a you know in a bar in North Carolina. Uh, that was kind of the funny introduction, and from there I started to do like the same simple thing everybody else does, like oh, who is uh, Marcus Aurelius, you know, and who is Seneca, and oh, what is this, and I started to learn more, uh, and then fast forward, and it started to really become a part of my life. A few years later, where really I started to really focus on it, try to understand it and then implement it into like my job and my life. But of course, my job coaching, you know, sports and stuff like that. So, yeah, that was my very weird introduction really into Stoicism, but it it stuck with me.
1: And that's the nice thing about, in my opinion, any philosophy that's worth its salt, it's rooted in this notion of self awareness. Mm whether it be Zen, Taoism, Buddhism, Stoicism, even religions, Christianity, any of this stuff, it's about being able to step back and say, okay, this person's doing this. That's right. You know, I'm pissed off about it or I'm reacting to it, but I don't need to take it personally unless it's like some sort of physical threat to me. I can just step back and say they're simply reacting or projecting or whatever the case may be. But it's very easy for us, especially in today's society when there's so much inbound between social media, news feeds, the internet, where we are bombarded with these things mm-hmm. and all these stimuli are vying for our opinion. So now even without being aware of it, we're sort of artificially edgy That's right about things. And now all of a sudden, almost anything can catch us sideways. And now we're even more aggravated than we are aware of before it gets started.
2: Oh yeah. It's very easy to, uh, to let that spiral really like it really can. It's, you know, it's, it's the same. It's like you know, we talk about you know, people will talk about compound interest, right? Well, it's the same thing with your emotions in the other way. You know, it can be good, but it can be really bad. Also, it's the same concept of like, oh, this little thing, and then I add it to this little thing, and then this little thing. Uh, somebody told me once. I wish I could remember. It was so long ago, and and I can. Re- I wish I could remember the context of what happened to li- lead to it. But anyways, he's like, you ever play that game? The game. um, with the little parts I can't even believe, Tetris. He goes, You ever played mm. Tetris? I was like, Yeah, he's like, You know how whenever you start to place the positions and the, the blocks in the wrong spot and it starts to pile up real quick? I was like, Yeah, he's like, That's life, like that's what life does to you. Just it'll get there a lot faster than you realize and it'll take you all the way to the end. Like, I was like, Oh, it was a silly way to say it, but at the same time, it makes total sense because it's a visual. You know, stimulus that goes to that you can you can actually visualize what that would be, and that stuck with me. Like, don't let the stress be Tetris pieces. You know that kind of thing.
1: Yeah, and sometimes it's something as simple as just breathing, meditating, working out. All these things are very natural ways to not only get it out of your system, but turn that almost into a fuel. Turn that into something that you can actually leverage to your advantage to help not only yourself but the people around you in the process. Yeah, I think that people forget about that self awareness and then they also forget that that lack of self awareness again impacts the people around them, whether it be as a team leader as a as a husband as a wife as a as a father whatever mm-hmm. so we have to always be aware of that because that gives there's there's much more gravity to all the stuff that we do if we take that kind of responsibility and I know we're military yeah. guys, so we're big on taking responsibility oh yeah tell me tell me a little bit about your podcast because I was I had the honor of being on your podcast. We uh, had an interview yesterday as a matter of fact. Tell me a little bit about it. Tell me about the inception of it. What, what led you to, to do that work?
2: So from a podcast standpoint, I mean, I I think I'm like a lot of people. I got into podcasts. I actually got into them probably about 2013 ish, somewhere like that. I started to learn about them and, um, I didn't really realize at the time how important they would become to me, but I just started listening. Somebody told me about it and I was like, Oh, what's a podcast? And they were like, Yeah, hey, that little purple button on your phone. I was like, What? And I pressed it and then I started like learning. I was like, What is this? And I just thought it was really cool. So uh, so I started listening to them. You know, I'd throw them in when I was at work, you know, or whatever. <laughs> like I if I was sitting at the desk trying to get stuff done, I'd just toss something on. And a lot of it at that time was like sports podcasts, and I just toss them on It was good stuff during the day. So that's kind of where that happened. And so you fast forward. Many many years later, and I and I kind of looked at it. I, you know, I wanted to sit down, and I've always written. I've always done a lot of writing and stuff like that. Uh, you know, for me, like j- just doesn't really go anywhere but me. But I just, I was like, I, I want to try to do something. I I didn't grasp mentorship when I was young. I felt very lost when it came to like having a good strong male role model in my life. I was very very lost. I looked towards the military to give me a lot of that. Military has wonderful things and awful things that, you know, like you know, that's like anything else you do. There's things that right. like I go to work and I'm like, how is this a thing we do? Uh, but at the same time, I am a blessed man because of my time in the military. And I looked to the military to find male leadership, male mentors, you know, to, to find these things. I had my grandfather who is the only person I've ever considered a hero. Like everybody else, it's like, i would placed them all one row be- below him. He was He's the best of all time for me, but that said, so you fast forward to the Inheriting Manhood podcast, and basically, at a certain point, I just I was I was talking to Katie, and uh, and I just said, you know, I want to start doing something. You know, I I mentor these young men and women in the military, and I mentor these young men women who have coached in sports, and and I help with them, but I want to do something, and I like podcasts, so I should do a podcast, and so you know, a lot of them. Uh, a lot of them are me talking, like they're just me by myself, which probably is why most people would turn them off and be like, Oh boy. But, uh, sometimes I, I just, I just sit there and I, I go over something. This is something I believe is pertinent that I think would be good for a young man or even a young woman to hear uh, and help them. Sometimes it's military-based or athletic-based. Uh, sometimes I just put my thoughts on paper and then I just read it out. Uh, and then as much as I can, I try to bring on people like yourself to be able to talk, to give their life experience, to give their perspective on things. Because the honest answer is like, I think there's an entire generation, but there are a lot of men out there, obviously women as well, but a lot of men really struggling and trying to, they're not even struggling with like, not necessarily depression or anything, just how to get started, how to find something, right? Like something that can give them some version of the guidance. And then from there, they take off and go. And so for me, that's kind of what I thought when I started the podcast. I was like, you know what? I'm on the way out, transitioning, you know, out of the military in the very near future. and, And because of that, I want to try to find something to Military is about service, and I, I love the fact that I get to serve my audience through talking on the podcast. Like it's very deep connection to me as the service I get from it. So that's that's my why. So yeah,
1: and that's that's so important because mm-hmm. again, that's what we do is we try to serve, and the more that we can serve others, the more that elevates everybody. If you're able to bring somebody up they're able to step up and they can bring you along the way and and everyone that's around you in the process. And you mentioned your grandfather was your father, not that big of a role model for you when you were growing up?
2: No, my biological father was uh, not a good man. Uh, My biological father was, uh, he was, he was. Oh, it's funny. If you ask anybody that knew him, they'd say he was a really hard worker. He loved working on farms and stuff like that. But he struggled with alcohol. He struggled with drugs. He was an abusive man. He 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 dealt drugs. He was in and out of jail. He just he just wasn't a good man. And so he was just never there. And he was, you know, he gave me up at a very young age, nothing to do with my life. Um, and I and I had somebody else come along that, you know, tried to fill the void, but it just never, it never worked, right? And we never clicked. And that's but the the honest answer is like I I credit any version of any sense that I have with the for my mom. Like she was an she's a rock star of a woman, like a human being that I just I, I just can't imagine having a better mom. And so she did it. Her absolute best always give. I definitely did not grow up as like the poorest person in the school or anything like that. I didn't grow up the richest either. Like most of us, I grew up like just a blue collar family. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I I struggled very deeply with the fact that my biological father could just happily sign a piece of paper and and do away with me and never Mm -hmm. have anything to do. And that that really it really threw me all the way into my 30s. Like it really did. Now I've I've accomplished a lot, right? Like I had to get all the way to the point of breaking, but I really accomplished a, a lot on my personal self. But him doing that led me to, I mean, even to the simplest thing, like a couple of years, wouldn't have been that long ago, more than a couple of years ago. But let's say if I served with you a decade ago and I saw you, we served on a deployment and we served and we flew together anything else, I'd introduce myself to you again. I would assume you would forget me. Why would you need to remember me? I'm an irrelevant human. Like that was, and as I got older and I started to really work on myself, really dive in, I realized like that is, I know where that comes from. That comes from that, right? Like it's a, it's a, it was a thing that really was deeply ingrained in me. So I I look at it now as a, as a gift, as a, as a big, like a big thank you and the sense of I now appreciate. People so much more, like I want to be with them in that connecting like when we talk connected a way that they're like he like not like oh i 'm famous, he'll remember, but like, oh, he embraced what I was saying, he cared about me, he empathized, okay, awesome, he'll remember me in the future, or something to that effect, like oh okay, so I, I take a deep connection whenever I spend time with people uh and serve with them, especially obviously or coach them uh, because of that and that's where that that's really where that comes from for me.
1: Wow. That's, that's heavy. That's a big blocker for a lot of people. It's,
2: it's a nasty one. It'll get you.
1: So how were you dealing with that until recently when you were able to kind of unpack it? Were you overcompensating? Were you going the other direction? Because for so many people, if they have an alcoholic father or mother or any family member for that matter, they do one of two things. They either go towards that because that's the norm, right? or they rail against it because they desperately don't want to be like that. Yeah. Where where were you at? What made you take the the path that you did as opposed to falling down into that weakness?
2: I just worked hard. And that's like, you know, you talk about the workaholic. I fell into that category and I used it in a productive way for the things I was doing, but in a negative way for me, I just looked at it like, right, okay, all I know is this. If I go to when I was a kid, if I go to practice and I work as hard as I can on the sports team, the coach will accept me for that. Okay, so I'm gonna work twice as hard as everybody else. When I went in the military, I was like, what do they want me to do here? Well if they tell me to do this and I go out and do it, then they're okay. And they like to keep me around. So they'll keep me around. So if I just work harder than this guy and and not like even like a step on anybody, just a, Hey, whatever, like, no matter what they give me, like, if they tell me that we have to do this, I'm going to do that times 10. So they're going to like, I'm going just, I'm going to be fanatical about this. And so when I, uh, when I became a flyer, I spent like if you, it would have looked like a scene off beautiful mind where he's got all the stuff taped on the walls. Like if you had walked in, you would have seen checklist and you would have seen all kinds of schematics and you would have seen like overhead panels and stuff like in pictures frames, like all over the bedroom in my hotel room and stuff like that, or my, uh, my building room or whatever, you would have just seen the whole thing caked in it because I was staring at everything and I'd wake up at four 30 and I'd be studying and I'd study till it was time to go get breakfast. And I'd come back, I'd study till it's time to go to class. I'd get back from class. I'd study till it was time to get something to eat. Uh, I'd give myself a break to go to rugby practice, you know, for the local team, just to burn off steam. And then I get right back in and I'd study until like 10 or 11 o'clock at night. And then I'd wake up and i do it over and over and over. And I'd do that like day after day and little things like that, right? Where it's just like, I need to, every single day when I show up and I'm, I'm still this way, but in a healthy way now compared to what I was then was every single day I need to show up and I need to 100% prove to them that they don't want to get rid of me because in my brain, it was always because they will, because obviously you're not worth like loving. So you don't matter. It's a male dominated organization, the military. So the males out here can easily toss me aside. So I need to work hard for them. So it was always that thing. That's that's how I punished myself. But it's also funny enough, it's probably what's like helped me throughout my career, but it but it really was the thing that that it punished me for a long time. So yeah, that's how I handled it. So
1: Well and it your story is is not that different than a lot of people now, right? And right? saying that for you, you were able to take that part of your father, maybe the only positive thing that you could see in him yep. was the work ethic. Yep. And you internalized it maybe it was fear-based maybe it was anxiety ridden maybe it was this fear of abandonment however like you said going through it you eventually learned that's to right just kind of had that be part of you and now that you're in a place where you can truly step away and look at it from this more educated compassionate yeah viewpoint on yourself that helps you understand okay i'm going to want to drive but uh, as i said on our interview on your show yesterday Sometimes for those of us that have a work ethic that it's really, really strong, yeah. it's harder for us to take our foot off the gas. Very hard. It's harder for us to be efficient. Yeah. Because in our mind, well, I'm just going to be here for 12 hours anyway. I don't need to worry about trying to just squeeze these 12 hours into three hours. That's right. But sometimes that gives us that intellectual laziness. Sometimes you are like, well, I'm just going to keep going over this. Well, maybe there's an easier way to do it. Maybe there's a faster way to do it. But if we're conditioned that I have to work harder oh, yeah. and punish myself. We will never, ever do that. Yeah. Are you still, are you able to kind of
2: I bring am, that back a little bit? I now? am now. Uh, I'm still, you know, I pour myself into anything I do. I don't believe in going anything other than hundred 150,000%, you know, at all times. Like yeah. I'm high octane when it comes to that kind of stuff. But I've definitely learned over the time. You know, it's funny you say that. Yesterday I went to the gym, you know, we talked about this yesterday. We were, Recorded, and then I went to the gym and I worked hard. I actually had to send a message to, I actually had to send a message to, um, to a commander, right? So to not my commander now, but where I'm getting ready to go. I already know him. We'd flown together in the past, everything else. I'm getting ready to go there. And that will be the last time and I'll be, you know, off and running into the, into the civilian world, but I'm going out the way I want. It. So, so I'm going to go to that squadron. So I said something. I was like, oh, yeah, you know, this paperwork, you know, how this goes, you process to a new base. There's a bunch of paperwork goes in, goes in, into play with it. And, um, I sent a message. I was like, yep, waiting on this piece of paperwork. All I got left. Really looking forward to getting there. Like, hope I can, hope I can make you guys proud. Right. Like that kind of thing. It's just kind of a standard thing you'd say to, a, you know, a guy that you're going to go work for or whatever, you know, <laughs> but I sat there. I remember this. I sat down, like I was sitting on the bench press and I was just like doing like a couple warm up bench press things before I went into my workout and I was just sitting there and I sat on the edge of the bench and I was like, oh no. What if I'm a failure now? Because I used to fly with him, right? And I was just like, "What if I'm a failure now? What if, what if now is when I actually fail and I go out and he thinks I'm pathetic?" Like that thought, the old me came back in. It's a, it's not just always it's people think these things, right? But like, right. but I almost let that take me to a poisonous place, and instead, I was like no, you know how to work and he knows you. And you, and I, like, I got myself back out of it. And I focused on that while I was in my workout of making sure that like, I didn't allow myself to go down. What used to would have been like, that would have been, that would have thought would have been in my mind. And for however many years going forward I, until that man retired or I retired, I would be trying to kill myself physically to make sure I got everything done. Like, it was not uncommon for me to go in, you know, be in the squadron zero six and not leave till 2300 at night. And that was because there could be something that could be done. So I'd better be there in case it needs to be done. And that was who I was. Uh, whereas now it's like, no, I need to be able to focus my attention on home life and the job and the podcast. And, uh, you know, these three things are the things that like really mean a lot to me and mm-hmm. the other things i kind of like figure this out and then i kind of figure this out and you know, sometimes i can lay off of this and then sometimes i can attack this and it's it, yeah so that's that's where i'm at now but yeah even that yesterday hit me and it could have taken me to a really bad place
1: and so how were you able to what was your dialogue that helped you reverse <laughs> yeah
2: <the>? yeah <laughs> so my dialogue at first i was like well, you flew with him, you served with him. He knows you, he knows you personally. Like I started talking about that kind of thing. And I was like, well, what's the job? The job is this, you've done this job for many, many years. So you know the job, And even though you've been out of that specific job, at that specific place for, you know, however many years now, five years, six years, you know, cause other assignments happened, you know, I was just like, no, you know how to do that. You'll get back in, you'll, you'll go, you know, to an initial training again and get spun back up. You'll be good. So that part's not, problem. You're a much more physically focused person in the sense of like physical fitness. I've put that back in, into the, like the forefront of where I'm at instead of where I had it for a while, you know, okay, I'm a little bit more, I'm a lot better at communicating now than I was then. So I won't be screaming. You know, I won't be like, I I had part of the thing too was a defensive mechanism for me was always like, I will always fight. Like if you want to fight, I will fight. Like, fit whether that's a verbal confrontation or even a physical confrontation i was not at any point worried the only thing i wish would have happened is i would have met the other version of me so he could just like slap me and i'd have been like oh well i don't know what the hell i'm doing so um you know that would have been nice but yeah so but those two things and so i'm like oh you know what uh i'm gonna go back higher ranking more experience more expectations but also like more intelligent individual, more well-read person. Well, you know, I spend more time soaking in what I'm being told before responding. Like I've really stepped up my game in these ways. And that's how I started to talk myself through like, where, where is the good in, in me? And what can I offer them that, that, that I know I can give them? And I just started focusing on those things. And over an hour, I worked myself through that to where I was like, okay, I am ready to go. Like, I cannot wait for that to happen now. Like, That kind of thing happened over a one-hour period that could have turned into years of me continuing to fight and spiral out of control.
1: And it would have been unnecessary. And I I talked to CEOs and leaders where they have kind of what you were talking about, where in their mind, yesterday we talked about working and having a work ethic, but there is a difference because... If you're talking about working from 6 a.m. until 11 p.m. because something needs to be done, you and I understand now at this level that that means that you're not leading properly. That's
2: right. That's exactly. That means right. you're
1: not, you're not delegating. You're not creating more leaders or what I see at some of these multimillion dollar companies. They don't trust their people enough because it's a control issue. Yep. That's right. And now, even though they spent a lot of money getting this person headhunted into this position, they're still trying to be the bottleneck because they want to feel valued. They want to feel like they mean something. They want to feel like what they say really adds the stamp of approval when they don't understand that, again, especially the level that you're at as well at this high level. It's good to get on the ground once in a while with the troops, so to speak but you can't live there because if you're doing that, you can't do your jobs, right? It's impossible for you to take your hands off the wheel on the ship, walk around down below deck to see what's going on, run, you know, run the the rocks. So it's so important. And then also what you're talking about as a civilian, when you transition, you'll see how unsustainable that is. Yeah. Which I know that you already know that, but sometimes we don't, sometimes we don't, Think it's that big of a deal? When I came out, like I was only in for like four years, but when I came out, the amount of just the the people that wouldn't even show up to work on time, I'm like, how hard is that?
2: Oh, that yeah,
1: right? Or the people that don't have the right uniform? I mean, in the military, like that is the bare minimum. You're in uniform, everybody's here. You're there five minutes early at least, absolutely. And then to go into the civilian sector where you have a person that, like, I remember a young punk kid pulled right out in front of me the first day I got out when I'm on my way to go to this gym to to enroll, pulls out in front of me, slams on his brakes, goes into a gas station, no signal, not paying attention. I could literally see the phone in his hand Mm -hmm. as he's doing that. And I followed him for a second and I pulled my car over in the gas station and I had to sit there for a second and I was like, no, it's not my job to to tighten this kid up. It's not my job to try to square this kid away. That's right. But that that leader in me, you know, it's like Corporal Anderson was gonna come out and let this kid know what was going on. But it's like that's not my job. He's not gonna take it well. And frankly, it's gonna scare him, which some people might think, Oh, that might be a good thing. It's like, no, in today's day and age, you don't know. You don't know what that may do to him or that if right. his friend has is scared or if they have a weapon or if I it escalates and all of a sudden now this thing that I could have easily just driven around mm-hmm. and said now I let it escalate into something even bigger.
2: Now your ego gets yeah, you know, pulls you in your ego pulls you in thinking that you have all the answers to fix that. like that's, and you may, you may, but, but it's also that person, right? Does that person want to receive that message? Because if they don't want to receive it, it doesn't matter how you say it. You could, you could read it, you could write it, you could sing it, you could beat it into them. It doesn't matter. It's not going to work. If they're not ready to receive the message, it's not going to work. That's one of the hardest things that I've ever had to learn is like, just you you may actually have an answer that will give them a, the, the actual result they want. But if they don't want to hear it, they're not going to hear it. And that's one of the, one of the hardest things for me to learn. But one of the best things I've learned over time is like, try to focus on getting them to the point where they are hunting down answers. And if you can get them there, then it may not even be you, but like they are actively seeking out answers. They will find it. Like they will find a way to do it.
1: Yeah. I hear coaches that are like, you know, my client won't do what I want, or you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make them drink. It's like, it's not your job. Your job is to make the horse thirsty so that they run towards this knowledge that you're providing them. But until they are thirsty, you have to remind them of that thirst. Because without that, they're never going to go there. And it's, um, frankly, if you're a coach and you have people that are not doing what you're telling them to do, one, you're either not coaching them properly or two, they're just not the right client for you. Or three, you're not charging them enough. Double your prices and see how much more they take your advice to heart. Right?
2: I coached a team one time, and I made like I coached a, a I've coached rugby teams and soccer teams and stuff like that, and in basketball teams over the years, just for fun. You know, whenever I go somewhere, I try to like throw that in as a side thing, just to just to do. But I was coaching this rugby team, and I basically told them I was like, all right, you guys want to play? Here's the deal. So you're not touching the ball. Like I'm not required." To let you touch the ball, but it was at this college that didn't. And this is this is this was a weird concept for me. Obviously, being in the military, you'd understand this one also. There was no cut policy, right? In my mind, I was like, "Well, that doesn't make any sense." Like they're like, "Well, technically, this is rugby in most colleges is a club sport, right?" So even though even if your team is great, even if they play the highest levels, it still may be considered a club sport, not a of NCAA sanctioned sport. So it's everything's taken care of by the school, all that kind of stuff, right? So it is. It's still. At that level. So they're like, oh, we don't have cut policies for our club programs. And I'm like, okay, but people can quit, right? And they're like, yeah. And I was like, all right. So I walked out on like day one and I was like, I can't cut any of you. Like, literally all of you have a spot on this team. So you're not going to get the ball basically for the first week, maybe the first two weeks. You're not even going to see it. Like, you're just going to run. You're just going to run like a lot and hit a lot. And at the end of that, like I was able to weed out all the people that would have quit, you know, that I would have cut, right. Like, or, or even worse, maybe one or two, of them would have snuck through. And then I would have cut somebody who was really willing to get after it. So instead I ended up with a team of like hardworking, motivated individuals and whether they were athletes or not was a different thing. I could teach them the sport later, but I wanted the people with the will to be there, like the desire to fight through it. And that was, I look at it now. And I think if I ever like go back into coaching, i would never have a cut policy. I'd be like, hmm, there's no cut policy. You just will not receive this ball and will not enjoy this, the fruits of this. Like if I have to go three weeks into the season and we get beat by a hundred points, I'm okay with that. But there's, there's some of you who need to quit and I'm going to make sure that happens and not in a, not in a malicious way in a, you need to look at yourself in the mirror and decide if you want it way. And if like rugby is a physical sport, right? If you don't like contact, you don't need to be there. So by me putting you through physical uh, training, you're going to learn that you should go away and that's okay go find the other thing. You're probably a phenomenal athlete. You just don't need to be playing a contact sport and that's okay. Go do something else. All good.
1: Yeah. You don't have to be our scrum half. That's fine. We, we don't need you. There's going to be somebody else that wants that. And like you said, once they have the will, that's more important because you can't really teach that skill. We can always teach. You can always teach the federal pass. You can always teach those things and they can drill that if they have the will. But without that, everybody thinks we talked about it on our interview yesterday on your show about mm-hmm. how I, there were younger guys when I was in infantry school that studs, natural, you know, five and a half minute miles, just crushing it. But when you put them in an environment where they weren't the top dog, where you're asking them to learn something under duress in the heat of it and their stakes and there's real adversity. Now they're like, oh shit, I've, I've never, I'm not used to this. And now again, they're holding back. And now that's what gets men killed, that hesitation, right? So it's it's so important to have that pain and discomfort of the best teachers for for better or for worse. And that's the reality. So
2: Absolutely. That 100% is. That's
1: the only way that we can get there. We were talking yesterday about how adversity forces us to level up. And if we we're looking at it from the right vantage point, there's always an opportunity. There's always a gift in it. Can you tell us about an adversity that you went through in your life that at the time you were like, why did this happen to me? How am I going to get through this? I'm never going to be the same on the other side of this thing. Can you tell us about something that happened that at the time seemed like this huge curse? But when you got to the other side, it was actually a, a huge opportunity for you, a gift.
2: Yeah. I can actually tell you here's the funny thing. One happened whenever I was a teenage, you know, teenage time frame, but it, it didn't surface, I guess I should it didn't bubble over until I was older. And then when I did, because of another one it forced me to deal with that one. And it forced me to deal with my father. So the irony is that both of these things happened later. So in, oh gosh, it's been a while ago now, but in my mid thirties, somewhere in that time frame, it's bad. I don't remember, but I just can't remember. But I came home from a deployment, like so many guys have to find out that my now ex-wife was having a, a very long uh, affair and was pregnant with another man's child. And so You can only imagine how that goes, right? And that caused a lot. The irony in it is that it's funny. I I look back on it now. That was a very traumatic time, like to deal with that coming back. It it just it was a really rough thing to deal with. Um, There, but having said that, it when I look back on it now, I'm like, oh, you know, I got that. Like that was like I got through that one. Like I got through that. Um, It did change me. It changed the way I looked at certain things. It taught me a lot of great things, but it forced me because I almost instantly, so because she was pregnant with another man's child, I was like, I don't know what to do. I have to take care of this child. I, my brain was like broken. It was like, it's my responsibility to take care of this child because if not, I look just like my dad did, right? Mm. Literally not my job to take care of this child. Not my responsibility, but my brain was so mm. broken. And so but what happened for me was because I'd never dealt with be, you know, my dad doing that. And I'd never dealt with being molested as a as a young man or teenage mm. age time frame, you know, that young teenage time frame. Because I hadn't dealt with that. I literally just pushed him away and just fought through all that and not told anybody. Never told anyone. I let that fester for a very long time a very long time. It was a couple of years ago when I started going to the gym actively. I used to be in very good shape. I'd run, I'd do this, I'd do everything outside or I'd do whatever in my house. But I went to the gym. I didn't want to be around it because the individual who molested me was a very strong, powerful, fit person, right? So for me, I was like, oh, all those people are bad people. Screw them. I didn't want to be around them. So I, I would do, I'd go out and like run in the snow or like kill myself in the middle of the Dow station in Arizona. It'd be, you know, August, and It'd and be two in the afternoon and I'd be working out outside but like to me, that was okay because at least I didn't have to go into the gym. So I didn't like to go to the gym. Things like that, that I didn't even realize were happening. And then I got older when that happened. All of that like came rushing forward. So almost not immediately, but pretty damn quick. The affair didn't become the problem. It was the fact that now I was sitting in a house trying to figure out how to deal with these demons that i had not coped with i had not dealt with uh, i could i could do my job i could do all these other things uh, i was great at them but all of a sudden the shit that i had never like focused on got me it was like hey in case yeah. you didn't know this we've been hanging out here for a while and we're really excited to come play and that's really what it was right and so those demons showed up And you know, obviously, yep, go through divorce the whole nine, all of that. And that was a, that was a very stressful and very exhausting situation, but those things were playing on me heavily. And it got to the point where I, I had actually attempted. Suicide before and I had gotten to the end where I wanted to attempt suicide multiple times. I think part of that is being high octane, doing all these things. But then also because I constantly just berated myself, I just felt like, Oh, well, there's no, there's no way. There's no use. There's no nothing. You get to that point and it just nothing at that point. There's nothing. Did you ever get put in the dump tank and have to get flipped upside down for a helicopter, like for heli- helicopter training and stuff like that?
1: Yeah. Roll over, roll over, roller,
2: roll yeah. over, roll over, roll over. Right. Yeah. So you know how like you get roll over, they, they, They put you in that for a reason, right? So you learn which way's up. So when you get out, you can follow the bubbles kind of concept to keep it pretty basic, but follow the bubbles to the surface and you can get air and keep breathing. And that's the overall basic concept, right? Same thing. But I just got in the tank. Imagine like it's the middle of the night. I got in a helicopter. I've never been in that tank. I have no idea. And it goes down and there are no lights. I don't know which way I'm going. And so it it was that, right? And so I was just swimming deeper instead of coming up to the surface. And so that's really what it was. As I moved forward, I got to the point where I was like, all right, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. That's it. I'm taking my life. And I came within days of actually doing it. I had everything set up, the whole nine, all of it. I knew exactly I was going to do it. I knew the exact date I was doing it, everything. And I had a lot of lies going with everybody because I needed to make sure that I said my goodbyes, but nobody would have known that I was saying goodbye. And so I was going through all those steps and I got lucky as hell, right? So I just got, I got lucky. I met Katie a couple of days before. And I never thought I'd see her again. So it's funny, like we ended up together, she's Australian, she was in America. I met up with her and her mom over dinner one night, but we had a conversation that lasted for hours. And I actually was like, oh, this is fun. Like there was something enjoyable about my night tonight. And I hadn't felt felt joy in forever. I just hadn't felt any joy in my life. And that just feeling joy, I was like, oh, that was so much fun. And now the irony is again. Now we're together, right? And Not the iron, the beautifulness of it, but but I thought I'd never see her again, right after see, after just meeting her, because I was you know like, oh, I just met her and her mom and had a great evening, and she'll go back to Australia and never see her again. That's a whole different story for a whole different podcast. But how we ended up together, but but yeah, that miraculous thing gave me hope to get through the next day, and I was like, so joy. I, there's something here. I'm allowed to feel it. I need to keep going for that and keep trying to find that and not be not be ashamed to feel happiness and started pushing towards it started going towards it started attacking it started focusing on my diet on my running on on my sleeping on my communicate on, on everything i just I, I i just stripped back everything and there's still things that i'm that, that i have to like work on but that's life you know and that's part of the process but it took all of that to really go back and then to like look back and and especially like being molested and then really all of that started to come up. So then I had to actually go through that. And I had to start, like started, I had press, suppressed that so far down that I didn't even realize it was a thing almost. And then it was, when that started to come back up, it started to come back up with a vengeance. And I started to dream nightmares basically of that, like all of that started to come back. And uh, so I had to work my way through everything. To go, all right, let's go back to the, the beginning. I was not a. I was the. I was a human being, and another human being did not find value in me. Okay, all right, that sucks. But I did not do that. He he chose to do that. I have to get through this with my father, right? Okay, I did not molest me. Somebody else did. They did make me a victim in that moment, and I'm not one now. I'm like, literally, and this sounds harsh, and I've, I've talked to people. And they don't like this, but I to, I've told them like it. Like, when the Vic, when it ha- stops, you're, you're a victim of those circumstances But you now at that point get to start choosing whether you want to be a victim or not. Now that is not an easy thing when we're talking about molestation. Um, but it is real. You at that point get to start the process of trying to take back the power that that person has, has over you. Uh, and you get to start feeling that. And it's, again, I waited way too long, but it, once I started focusing on it, I got it. I was like, okay, I control this now. I get to, I get to attack this. I get to be a better person for this. Like I, so all these things started that, and it's all these happen. And you couple this with stoicism and reading a lot about stoicism. Like you, I started to learn my brain. I'm not a, I'm not a, I'm not a brain doctor. Uh, but, uh, but I started to learn my brain. I really started to understand my emotions. I started to realize like it's okay that I like that I feel anger because that's a completely natural thing to feel. But how I express that anger is 1000% my choice. Same thing with joy. Same thing with like every single emotion, love, like despair, all of it, everything. It's you're going to feel that thing. You're going to feel it. You're a human being. What you do with that feeling, how you handle and come through it, process and and use that is 1000% up to you. That is a horribly hard thing to do sometimes. But the honest answer is no matter the scenario that will, that is always the thing is it, it is your choice. So, man,
1: that's powerful. And there's so much in everything that he just said in the story. Anybody that I've ever met in the military, anybody that I've ever met that's been through ranger school, SEAL training, even infantry school, and I'm talking kind of about suicide or thinking of suicide, understand that just tell yourself, I just need to get through today. I just need to make it to lunch. 100%. My squad leader told me that when he was trying out for certain things, he would just say, I'll quit tomorrow.
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: And that's what it was. So he gave everything. And for you talking about meeting Katie. Yeah. Katie. Yeah. Meeting Katie. The, the beauty of that was you were able to be truly your entire self because you didn't think you were going to see her.
2: I really didn't
1: after that. And so she got to see who you really were, which also kind of ferreted out who you really were underneath all of this pressure, underneath all this unresolved trauma. And Let's talk about that. I mean, girls are raised a certain way. Yeah, You know, you act like a lady. Men, boys, as we are raised, we're raised in this. Oh, they're fighting. Boys will be boys. Yeah. So you have that. For, for men, it's like this overt depression where we act out to a female. It's covert depression. Mm-hmm. So that's why girls, if they commit suicide, it's usually between the ages of 16 and 21. Very high risk. Mm-hmm. And usually they do something that's like, take pills or even if they're doing something to deal with their stress it's an eating disorder it's cutting themselves in a very very subdued way because that's what they were taught to do so to them unresolved trauma looks like maybe promiscuity maybe fear maybe maybe alcoholism but they want to keep it quiet boys is the other direction where all of a sudden again boys will be boys when they act out whether it be from trauma whether it be from molestation they're starting fights. They want to fight.
2: Oh, I always wanted to fight
1: right now. Right? Oh, yeah. they, they want it. They want to disrespect it or they want to sneak out of the house and go for a joyride. Oh yeah. And those are the ones that, again, they are abusive. They are acting out even when they, again, when they want to commit suicide, can, can you tell me how you were going to do it? Hmm. I
2: can tell you. Yeah. I can tell you multiple. Uh, funny enough, the first time I, I decided to do kind of the, the, uh, that, The pill version, right? The first time I actually ever tried to commit suicide, I I didn't want to have to sit. There was, there was so much traffic. You lived in Atlanta, you know.
1: Oh my God. Yeah. 75 going Northbound after five. That's exactly right.
2: And that's exact. That is quite literally what I was doing. I pulled, Mm. I pulled off of the base at the time I was based there. I pulled off of the base and there was a ton of traffic. And I was like, I don't want to deal with this shit anymore. Now, obviously, traffic is not going to be the thing, but I was so stressed in life, and the irony is, at the time, I had would come off of an injury not that long before that, and I had a prescription for Vicodin and everything else they get. It, like I usually have 800 hundred milligram Motrin because that's what they give us Ranger candy as they like to call it. Yeah, like, yeah. But the honest yeah. answer is, like at that point, they were like, "Hey, no, you need this," so like I had I had Vicodin. And I had a whole bottle of of that kind of stuff that I'd been going through, right? And I was down to my last couple. So I had a couple of those and I had a shit ton of Tylenol and I just went to a hotel and checked in. I was like, hey, uh, yeah, I'm not going to make it home. So I'm just going to do this because that traffic sucks. And I went in and I took the, all the Tylenol that I had and I took those and I drank a bunch of stuff and I should have died. And instead I spent all night like just vomiting everywhere and shaking and just disgusting And I woke up the next day, I fought through it, passed out for a little while, woke up the next morning, got dressed, went to work. And just was like, oh, no, I got to go back to being myself. I got to go, I got to go do my job. I got to go, you know, laugh and joke with the guys and blah, 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 and all the stuff we do. And, and just went back about my life. And then, you know, this, this happens. And then, I started thinking about it all the time. A couple of years later, I was like, God, how great would it be to just like, just drive into this frigging tree like right now. Like, and I it just like, it just kept going and kept going, but I kept working and kept working. And because I kept like, I try new challenge. I really think one of the best things for me is that I kept trying new challenges from a work perspective. Like I, I want to go do this, right? My whole life was crumbling and falling around me, but like I kept finding another opportunity and challenge inside the military. So I kept going. And whenever I'd get that word that I could go do that job or go try that thing, it was like, I'm going. And then I get it. And I just keep attacking and attacking and attacking. And that would keep me going. So I look at it and I'm like, thank you. Thank you so much for every opportunity I ever got because it's what kept me going. But whenever I finally decided I was done that time, I walked into a place that I rented. I moved down into the DC area. Uh, for my assignment down there. And I looked up and it was basically like, imagine like you walk into the foyer and there's like a staircase that goes up. You know how DC is, it's just everything's crammed. So like everything in that whole region. So everything for me was just built straight up. So straight up and then over top was an open banister area, right? Like an overlook. And then it went to the third floor. Like It was all just like straight up, like stacked up. And I just looked, you know, I could see the very top of the top floor, like of the third floor steps. And I walked in and I was like, I'm gonna jump from that. And I just waited until I was waiting until a date, a specific date, because that was the date uh, that I had found out that my ex was pregnant with China. I was like, if I do it on this day, the people that know me will know why I did it, but nobody else will. And I can fake it. So that way there's insurance money and all that stuff. And I was like, I need to make sure I take care of people and I don't want anybody to know. And I need to feel. So I planned it and I was like, I will break some of those rails on that banister and then I will go to the top and I'll drop a. Of laundry down. Like it looks like I tripped and slipped and fell, and I will literally just dive straight through those banister rails and I'll be two floors down and I'll kill myself. Like I'll die. That was in my head. And I walked up and down those stairs for months waiting in anticipation for that day. I gave up on my life, right? Like I did my job. I went to work and did my job, but I gave up. And that is, that's probably the, the worst fail I've ever had is when I look at it and I go, I gave up and I gave up for months. Didn't matter what I did. I gave up on myself. Like I just 100% gave up on my, I failed myself and I failed myself for months, like wasted half a year, basically just, that's the way I look at it now. Like I wasted half a year, right. Thinking I was trying to get better, but at the same time that I was thinking I was trying to get better, I was not getting better. And then like, it's like, I'm just going to do well until I get to that day. So, wow. you know, and then. The irony is the day I got there, I struggled through that day, but I got there because I'd met Katie a couple days before. And I was like, all I have to do is make it through this day. And if I make it through this day, I got it. And I made it through that day. And I spent most of that day just on my knees, just crying, just a miserable human being just lost. I got up the next day. I was like, okay, I, I have. I have a whole nother year until that day comes here. So I got a whole year to get better. And I just started going and I just started working and working and working at it. And it was horribly tough, but it was so amazing. Um, And it's amazing how when I started doing it, 30 something years of tearing myself down went away like that. And I started to feel improvement almost instantly. It's instant, right? Like you can't miss the sun if you're in. If you get flipped in the tank and you know see the sun, you're gonna. you like, I need to go that way. Like it was. It became very obvious, very quick that I could improve, I could survive, I could do these things if I just focused on that, and I just went for it. I'm here now, right? Like I'm breathing. Like that was years ago. And it's just been working on that over and over and over every single day, trying. I still fail a lot of things, but still like trying to go get better. That's what I've done. Like, that's just I'm very basic. I'm at the public school and I'm enlisted. So it's not like I have the most sophisticated approach. I just I'm like, well, I can just work really hard at, at finding joy. And like, that's what I started trying to do and gratitude. And, you know, and, and that's all I did. Started going towards that.
1: Man, sometimes it I mean, it is simple. It's not easy, but it has to be simple because in the heat of battle, complexity is the enemy of our execution, of of trying to get that plan going. That's what slows us down. That's what creates drag. Yeah. And we're no longer, no longer high speed at that point. And what you're talking about is you're speaking to that victim mindset and how because I was in that place too for a long time. Can you tell us why you believe some people stay in it? Because again, some people see adversity, they get through it. It takes a while because we have to process it. But then once we've kind of gotten through that and we don't try to bypass the emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Once we actually accept it, now we can begin to move. But why is it that some people get stronger from it and other ones just stay there and they essentially just have this meager existence for the next 40, 50, 70 years and call that a life and then? they're done.
2: And I understand why, but I think they're terrified of the vulnerability it's going to take to get out of that. Because what happened was in that victim, that thing that happened, whether it was, whether you were molested or whether you were beaten or whether, honestly, whether you grew up with nothing, like whatever the case may be, somebody in your family died, like tragic death, like whatever it was, you became a victim and all of a sudden you realize how vulnerable you were to being a victim, right? That's real. That sucks, right? Like, You've been in martial arts your whole life, right? So I feel very confident in my ability to get away from the average person in the sense of like, I've played rugby. I've done a lot of combat tactics and stuff like that. Nothing like, but you know how that we do those classes and stuff like that. I've done them on military bases, MCAP stuff like that. So I'm used to wrestling and that kind of stuff, right? So I feel confident in the sense that like, if needed, if I got in a tussle with somebody, I could get away. My ego tells me I, I don't need to like fight them anymore. Like I'm over that, but like, I feel confident enough. However, having said that, I also, because you have been in martial arts your whole life, if me and you start to get in a tussle, you know what you're doing. All of a sudden there's going to be a real vulnerability that happens to me. And now I'm going to be like, Oh no. Oh no. I'm, I'm in trouble. And that's going to be real. Right. So instead of what I think what happens is instead of people going back out on the mat of life and being like, well, I'm probably going to get my ass handed to me for a very long time. But I'm going to stick with this so I can learn how to get through this so I can work on it. I think what happened, I know what happens because it did it to me for a long time. I was like, I'm not going to be that vulnerable ever again. And what happens is you find comfort in all that pain. You find comfort in that like fear. You find comfort as messed up as that sounds. You're like, well, I don't know what the hell everything else is. And I know how awful this is. And it's awful but it's my awful. And if I stay here, then it's there's that. Then there is a false victimhood, right? And I, I will say this, because I tell p- young people this, especially, I say, listen, when you're making some shit up to just try to act like a victim, that's even worse because you're on purpose trying to become a victim. There are real people that go through real things that don't have time to deal with the, th- the falsehoods that you're, like, you're trying to just manipulate in your brain. Like life can be really tough sometimes and you got to fight through it, but that doesn't make you a victim. That just makes you a human. Same thing on the victim side. Like you have to be vulnerable now. You're going to have to do the work to fix yourself. You can look for people to help you. You can have guides, you can have mentors, you can have preachers and you can have spouses and best friends. You can have all those things, but like you have to be the one to actually do it. And if you're not willing to be vulnerable with the fact that at a moment, in time, you're proven weak, right? Like in some version of life, like, cause that's the way to look at it, right? Like I fell prey to a person because I was a weak person because I was young. I was an easy target. Got it. Okay. This happened. Gotta get past it, man. Like you gotta, you gotta, you gotta be vulnerable and become a better man. And I just started working at that. And I think that's what people want to do. So, but yeah, you gotta get back out on those mats and that, that concept. Take a lot of beatings. So, (laughs) but you'll get there. Like,
1: and I said this yesterday, there's there's the difference between the victim and the casualty. Mm-hmm. And we will all be broken by adversity. We will all be victimized by something at some point in our life if we haven't yet. But again, like you said, do we choose to stay down? Or right. do we choose to get stronger in that part where we are broken? And that's Henry Rollins has a comment where he says that scar tissue on your skin is actually stronger. Mm. Because it it becomes more resilient. So we have to decide, am I going to allow this to be the thing that makes me stronger? Mm-hmm. Am I going to choose to embrace this? And the thing is, oftentimes we don't embrace it once. That's right. Oftentimes it's multiple, multiple times. It's just like layers of of pain. It's just like trying to learn a skill set. And for so many of us, when we're close to adversity, and that's the thing that hurt us we want to get away from it as quickly as we can and put as much distance between us. But if we have the courage to stay close while it's open, or the courage to reopen it because it hasn't healed, that's right. We can find out what's in there. We can find out what we continually get tripped on, what we're continually being victimized by, or again, the devil we know, right? Oh, well, this sucks, but at least. I know what this victim mentality feels like. At least I had this identity. And now that's the person that surrounds themselves with more people that corroborate that belief, that encourage the behavior, that point that thing out to them. And then those are the people that are victimized and they can't wait to be victimized by anything. They're victimized by your opinion, your appearance, your freedom of speech, the way that you voted, the way that you didn't vote, the way that you didn't speak, the way that you hold yourself and again that's a projection of them that's right not you so again what is it it's not the event but it's the way that we think of it the the meaning that we assign to it and that goes perfectly into your epictetus quote so
2: yeah yeah absolutely that's exactly right it's our opinion of it like It's so true. That's life. That's good communication. You don't know what the conversation will hold. You just allow it to go wherever. But I I think for people to hear that too, is like understand that like I'm a 40 year old man who has been through the things that I've been through that I like, I know the things I've been through, right? So that's what I've been through. I've been through the things you've been through and we've all done our own thing. But even now, like I don't talk about it every day, right? So like for me, like that is a very terrifying thing to talk about, but it also is immediately healing. It's healing. And a big part of that too, and this is important for somebody. So if there's a young man, especially that's listening to this and has gone through that, like that one of this kind of uh, things in this field, these emotions, you are a grown man and I'm a grown man. We are having a conversation right now. and We are looking at each other. Obviously people are listening to us, but like we are able to look at each other. I've just sat here and said, these are the moments that I felt weak as a man. These are the ways that I felt expendable as a man that, that I felt like I could be laughed at or humiliated or insulted or be bashed. And you as a man sat there and accepted me for who I am now and me for what I've gone through and embraced that. And that for me, that is a very healing thing, right? Like, so to be terrified of it and to hide from the truth of it for years, like decades, and then to turn around and to, if asked, open up about it and then to be accepted by that person, like whether they accept me or not, but like to have that is healing. But to endure that pain of talking about it, but not in a victim way, but in a, I'm going to heal from this conversation way is a massive thing. And so for young women, also but young men, I'm a man. So that's what I know. So, but young men, like you have to talk, understand that that person may not feel comfortable with you talking about it because they may not be comfortable with it, but that may be because they don't know any better, right? Like they're going to try their best, but you need to start talking to somebody to start to heal because it won't go, it won't get better. You won't get better. You have to, you have to work on it. So here I am for healing from things that happened when I was a little kid. And I think that's a beautiful thing that people can they can find in their own vulnerability.
1: Well, the beauty of it is you're turning this into something that you having the courage to share your story will help others heal. It will embolden them to be courageous in this endeavor themselves. Again, it doesn't happen overnight. You don't know, just talk about it once or think about it once or think about talking about it to somebody once and then it's all good. it, it does take multiple exposures. But just like anything in life, this is a process. This is a practice. This is like meditation. This is like the practice of being present, the practice of of nutrition, the practice of communication, working out, whatever. We're never going to get to a place where it's like, yep, I think I'm good. Like you said, even today, even me, Like I still have numbness from the middle of my arms to my hands and the middle of my shins to my feet. Mm -hmm. But I'm grateful for that because that tethers me Mm -hmm. to that adversity. So I will never forget that. I never forget what it felt like to be in that place. And so in a lot of ways, that's why I am pushing myself physically, because when that was taken from me, I was like, God, I could have done so much more. And you're doing the same thing with your story, your origin of where you came from, leading to the military, being able to see what that does. And guess what? Now you have this really powerful capacity to see when there's toxicity. Mm -hmm in masculinity or in leadership or any of this stuff, because you've been, you've been party to it. You've been a victim to it. Yeah. So when you see that, and then what else happens when you see somebody that reacts in a certain manner, you're like, something's happened to that person. I'm not sure exactly what it was with physical, emotional, sexual, whatever, but you can at least recognize that. That's right. And just like they say, you know, skill recognizes skill, you know, game recognizes game. It's the same thing with these kind of things. So, But that started with your ability to have that presence, have self-awareness, not beat yourself up unnecessarily. It's like, yeah, of course, none of us are perfect. We all have warts and all. But that acceptance is the beginning of us being able to heal not only ourselves, but the rest of the people around us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah.
1: (sighs) Nate, Nate Gladden. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being here, my friend. Where can our listeners learn more about you? Where can they go support you? Where can they find out more about what you're up to, the podcast, everything you've got going?
2: Yeah. I'm on LinkedIn, Nate Gladden. I'm on uh, Instagram, Nate Gladden. And obviously, so I have inheritingmanhood.com and the website is called Inheriting Manhood. The the website, I have not, I'll be completely honest, upfront with your people. I have been very, it's set up as a blog. I have not Put a blog up there in a very long time. I should, I need to get back to it, but I have turned my attention to just trying to really communicate with my audience via the podcast. And that's where I've been focusing. So some of the things that I actually are on there are actually podcasts because I've read them. But, but yeah, the podcast is where most people can find me. I'm not great on social media. I'm not going to blow anybody's mind, but I'm, but I, I pour my heart and soul into doing the podcast. So I'd say the Inheriting Manhood podcast is probably the best place for them to find me.
1: I'm going to be on there soon. That episode will be out soon. And then our episode will be out. This one will be out in a couple of months. So we'll have some nice lag to kind of create that, uh, that exposure for everyone. So brother, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for being open and honest. It's hard for us as men sometimes to be vulnerable. It's hard for us as humans to be vulnerable, frankly, right? Man, woman, whoever, whatever you identify as. Yeah, There's a lot of, absolutely. it's tough to do that because there's that fear of, like you said, rejection, all that stuff. But that's the first step to being able to get to the next place that you want to be. And unless you want to perpetuate that in a negative way for the rest of your life, you got to start there, right?
2: You have to, you have to get going.
1: Any parting thoughts, anything you want to leave our listeners with before we get off here?
2: (laughs) Actually, you know what? I want to embarrass you for a second. (laughs) (laughs) Go ahead. You have just given like, because I do a podcast and I talk and listen and all that kind of stuff. like, phenomenal ability to carry the podcast, carry the guests through the podcast. And for people that are listening, maybe they don't understand that, but man, when you're trying to be the person doing the podcast and trying to make sure that you're trying to like, trying to serve that person that, that you're talking to by doing them right, making sure you're communicating, trying to get something for your audience, but at the same time, not making it seem like you're on a podcast, like you're trying, that's a not, it's not an easy thing. And I know that sounds silly, but like that just came to me. Like, God, this felt comfortable. And I feel comfortable talking to you anyways, but like, man, that felt comfortable. Like, so yeah, kudos to you, my friend. So
1: like I said before we started, I just want this to be the best interview I can make for you. I want it to serve you, your audience. And as far as I'm concerned, when all when it's a triple win like that, you win, I win, the audience wins. Yeah. So it's impossible for it to not make an impact on the people that it should be hitting. So yeah, thank you for that. Thank you for everything, my
2: friend.
0: Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Octa Nonverba. If this message resonates with you, please share it out with others on social media. Hit that subscribe button and leave a review for the show anywhere you listen to podcasts. To learn more, please go to marcusareliusanderson.com and join his Octa Nonverba inner circle to get exclusive content, news, and information. Until next time, remember, talk is cheap. Live your life based on actions, not words.